appreciate you being here tonight. Uh, this is a series that I taught a little bit of about three and a half or four years ago in my Sunday school class, and it offended a lot of people. So we'll see how this goes this time around. Um, truth has a way of doing that, and uh, right, wrong, or indifferent, it does. So I'm going to do this with as much love and humility as I can muster because uh, the step's on my toes, too. Um, the, uh, Daryl was asking me how many copies I made for tonight, and I said 50 because that's what I made for last week, and we had plenty left over. Um, and I said, how many do you want me to make for next week? And he kind of looked at me. I said, yeah, we'll see how tonight goes first. We'll see where that goes. But uh, thank you for being here again. And... Uh, how many of you have seen the show Mythbusters? Seen the show Mythbusters? Who is a raging Mythbusters fan? I mean, just you love myth. So this does not surprise me, Sean. And Joel, that doesn't surprise me. Oh, yes, Mr. Smith. All right, stand up, Mr. Smith. There we go. And tell us what Mythbusters is about. It's about busting myths, right? Every once in a while, they name a show something spot on. And that's what Mythbusters is about. So they have these myths, these urban legends that people talk about, and they try them out. So what was one recently? Somebody shot one out. That can be talked about in church. <laughs> Let's make sure we're PG, or at least PG-13. Somebody? Yes, Miss Sonia? If you throw a cup out the window, would it shatter someone's glass? Ah, okay. And they tested it, and they proved it true or false? True. True, it will shatter someone's glass, so don't do that, right? What else? What was another myth? If you cut a car in half, would it still be able to drive forward? If that's not proof that we have too much time on our hands in America, I don't know what is, right? One more. Anybody else got another one? Oh, get thee behind me, Satan, right there. That's <laughs> In any given room, you should be scared of the guy with the mic, unless Daryl doesn't have one, and then you should be scared of Daryl. So. But I heard another one over here. Can an Indy car pull a manhole cover? Like out of the ground? Oh, wow. What, how did that work? Okay, lifted it, but it won't pull it out. So the basic idea was we have these myths that are out there, and we want to test and see if they are true or not. And that's the basic idea behind the book that Larry Osborne wrote called Ten Dumb Things Smart Christians Believe. Now, some people get really offended at titles like this, and Osborne actually talks about this in the introduction, that if he had a more room on the cover page, because he kind of took up all that there was with that title, um, he'd have put 10 not-so-intelligent things that smart, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, well-minded, and mostly just kind of incorrect Christians believe, right? So he, he would have rambled a bit longer. But the reality is people all throughout history have made incredibly stupid decisions, right? Yeah, it's one of the reasons I hated studying history in school. It was dead people's bad decisions, that was my description of every history class I ever had, dead people's bad decisions. Unless we studied Jesus, and then he got everything right. And it still ended poorly for him. Right? So, dumb things smart Christians believe. 
the Christian community and the Christian theology is not immune to this concept of adhering to, listening to bad ideas that don't line up with Scripture. And some of these you may have actually heard in church. Some of them you may have heard from people that go to church. Some of these happen over casual conversations. And the reality is they're problematic. And they're more than just problematic. They're incredibly discouraging. And if you hang your theological hat on a promise that God never made, the disillusionment and disappointment and anger and resentment that comes along with that can last a lifetime. And most of you probably know somebody who thought that they had God over a barrel because they prayed a prayer a certain way. And he was going to come through because I believe this thing this way. And then that didn't happen. And that causes a lot of discouragement. And it can cause you to challenge and question your faith in God when in reality we've looked into his word and we've misunderstood something. Does this make sense? So we've got ten of these things. We're going to do one tonight. We're going to do an introduction. We're going to do one of these tonight and then nine over the next several weeks. Um, I'm going to read you an extended excerpt from the book and then we'll start talking about uh, the text for tonight. We'll be in Hebrews 11. So if you want to flip there, um, please do. This is Larry Osborne writing here. He says, Over the years I've counseled and worked with many people who have made life-altering decisions based on what they perceive to be biblical principles only to discover too late that what they thought was biblical didn't come from the Bible at all. Most of the time they were victims of a spiritual urban legend. A spiritual urban legend is just like a secular urban legend. It's a belief, a story, assumption, or truism that gets passed around as a fact. In most cases, the source is a friend, a Sunday school class, a Bible study, a devotional book, or even a sermon. Admittedly, the consequences of some spiritual misconceptions aren't particularly devastating, but far too often the consequences are spiritually devastating. Think of the disillusionment that sets in when someone writes off God for failing to keep a promise that he never made, or the despair that follows a step of faith that turns out to have been a leap onto thin ice. There was actually a word in a song was a line in a song that was sung here at this campus this morning. It said, you are everything you've promised. This was a song we were singing to God about God. And I love that line. He is absolutely everything he has promised. And when we get his promises wrong, we can be extremely disappointed in a God that didn't make a certain promise. Osborne goes on, My bet is that you've already seen through a few. Others you may have always questioned, but until now you thought you were the only one who didn't buy it. Some may rock your boat, but whatever the case, I encourage you to examine each one with an open mind and an open Bible. Yet I want to make it clear that nothing in these pages is meant as an attack on the people who believe these things. They themselves aren't dumb. Their assumptions and beliefs are. If I'd had more room in the title, I would have called this Ten Dumb Things That Smart, Sincere, Good, and Godly Christians Believe. Each one of these spiritual urban legends is a bit like fool's gold. It looks great at first glance, but once tested, it proves worthless. No doubt we've all jumped to some pretty foolish conclusions in our lives. I know I have. Anybody in here ever jumped to a foolish conclusion? Today. That both ends up for me. Um, We're going through a series in my Sunday school class called Bible Characters You've Probably Never Heard Of. This morning, uh, we looked at Michal. She was David's first wife, and she had a hard, rough, 
uh, wronged life. And she's only quoted really once in the Bible with any, anything of any substance. And uh, it's a very sarcastic, hurtful, deeply biting comment that she makes. And, uh, and honestly, it's the result, I believe, of years and years and years of being mistreated in her life. And she'd come to the place where she was not walking daily with God. And she said something that got recorded in the Bible. It, it, imagine, you get one quote from your life recorded in the Bible, and it's you on a, your worst day. And my comment to my class this morning was, please let us be careful the rocks that we throw, right? Because how, how many times today have I done something as foolish as what Mikal did on that one bad day and say something out of turn? That was wrong. Absolutely, that was wrong, that we can learn from. But at the same time, I want to be careful. And one of the reasons I really enjoyed this book when I read it uh, was the tone that Osborne takes when he goes through this book because the title almost sounds, and my physical posture is changing for a reason, it almost sounds like 10 dumb things that smart Christians believe, but not me. Not me, oh no, I'm smarter than that. And that's not the tone that he takes. He takes an incredibly humble, sincerely loving approach in this book. And that's one of the reasons that I like it. And I've, that's what my prayer has been for myself as, I, as we go through this, is that I have this spirit of humility. So when Daryl asked me if I had something to teach, there were a couple of reasons that I picked this. And these are your blanks on your handouts. If you're note takers, this is your first note. Alert, alert. Everybody that's OCD in the room, don't miss one, okay? Number one, to encourage us to look to Scripture to test all things. This is a quote from 1 Thessalonians 5.21. It says, test all things. Kick the tires. Make sure this is true before you hang your theological hat on this hook. Number two, to remove the disillusionment that comes when we rely on promises that God never made. And as we go through these ten, you will probably see some that you go, I either believed that, believe that now, or know somebody who does. And it can be extremely awkward when you are presented with one of these theological fallacies and you are expected to smile and nod in social, polite conversation. I have had three of these ten in the lobby of this building where somebody said, oh, yeah, well, that's true, right? No, that's actually not. What? Well, I'm banking this and this and this on that. Sorry, that's not right, actually. It's going to take me a couple of minutes to walk you through that, but that's not true. And my experience has been that if you approach this with a loving, humble spirit, you can gain a brother. So with that, here's our tentative schedule. Tonight, we're going to do an introduction and look at faith can fix anything. Sorry, got to take an X on that one. Next week, Lord willing, forgiving means forgetting. And a godly home guarantees godly kids. This is one that will make a lot of you mad. I'm just going to tell you right now. It will make some of your friends very, very angry. Uh, Week three is God has a blueprint for my life. And Christians shouldn't judge. It's a tough one there. We may be taking a break on the 29th. It may be the week later. It may be a week before. Let's go to the next slide. Week four is going to be everything happens for a reason. 
if I had a nickel for every time I've heard this, uh, I'd go eat whatever I wanted at Ichiban tonight. And I'd take most of you with me. Um, which may not be a bad idea. We should just take over. It's kind of cool, right? Uh, also, week four, let your conscience be your guide. It's the Jiminy Cricket philosophy of life. Right? And you'd be amazed, or maybe you wouldn't, how many folks hook their wagon to this. Uh, and then week five, God brings good luck. This is where we will hit head on with a steam roller, the prosperity gospel. Okay? We are going to crush it and leave it in little bitty pieces. And we're going to love the people that have hooked their wagon to it. Okay? Uh, number nine, a valley means a wrong turn. I've actually heard this one preached. And then number 10, dead people go to a better place. Wow, not exactly. Not always. All right, so those are the 10. So hopefully that'll get you thinking in this direction. So we'll start with week one, and faith can fix anything. Here's a quote from Osborne. The word on the street is that faith is a potent mixture of intellectual and emotional self-control that when properly harnessed can literally change outcomes through positive thinking and clear visualization. You ever heard this before? Just think positively about this. Visualize success. I hear this at least once a month uh, from a professional environment in some type of a training. Anybody ever experienced this? Just visualize success when you have this conversation with this person. It'll, it'll turn out that way, absolutely. Um, I'm going to hang the, the guilty banner on Vincent Norman Peale for this one. You ever heard of Vincent Norman Peale? He wrote a book. It was published like a billion times. Apparently everybody has a copy. The title of it is The Power of Positive Thinking. And it sounds so positive, doesn't it? Right? It sounds like, well, of course this has to be true. This is positive thinking. I believe Vincent Norman Peale loved Jesus. I do. There's a lot of good information about how to pray in that book. But there's a lot of really bad theology that says, if I look at it this way or say particular words, it'll happen a particular way. And that's dangerous. So here's your first blank on the uh, bad thing, number one. Positive thinking doesn't force God to do anything. We here at Stuart Heights believe in the sovereignty of God. Okay, we'll do that again. We here at Stuart Heights believe in the sovereignty of God. All right, there we go. So what I do as his creation, um, I'm going to rabbit trail here for a second, this morning when we were singing one of the songs, the, we have these backgrounds that move now during the songs. Right? This pauses, gives me squirrel moments all the time in worship now. Um, and it makes me think, and one of them was a star field that we were kind of going through. It was like the Windows 3.1 uh, screensaver, for those of you that remember that. The, you can make it go really fast or words go around and all that. Um, it makes me laugh every time we do this. Love you guys. You did a great job, but that makes me laugh. Um, and I was thinking about the stars and... You know, I, I think I'm kind of a big deal some days. I'm like, yeah, this is, I'm a big deal. Right, yeah. I live in a suburb of a town of 150,000 people in a state with 7 million people in a nation with 300-plus million people um, in a globe with 7 billion people. 
that is one of nine or more planets that revolve around one star that's not even the center of its own galaxy, that revolves around the galactic center, sort of, in a weird way. I, we're, we're small, guys, very, very small. And to think the arrogance that I could change God's behavior by something that I say. Now, don't confuse this with, does God care about me? Absolutely he cares about me. One of my friends on Facebook today posted a picture of her leg in sand. Anybody else see this picture? DeLeslin posted it today. Uh, and she said every time she goes to the beach, she's reminded of the grains of sand are like the number of thoughts that God has for us. And that is awesome. That is amazing. We cannot fathom how God loves us. But we're the sand, guys. We're not the creator of the sand. Okay? Is this resonating so far? You getting this? You got to give me some feedback. If you don't, I will ask for it. Okay, yes. Thank you for the head nod. I appreciate that. I see that head nod, yes. Um, I, I'm, you'll get that in like 20 minutes. It's all right. Don't worry about it. Uh, I'm in Bill Brandenburg's uh, shoe class on Wednesday nights. And the title of the book, I keep forgetting, it's Brad Bigney. Um, it's about idols. Gospel treason. Thank you. Uh, I just have the word idol stuck in my head. So that's, I think that's the point. So Brandenburg is giving me a thumbs up. He gave this quote uh, Wednesday night. He said, if you can replace in Jesus' name I pray with ready, set, go at the end of your prayers, you might have an idol problem. We pray this way, don't we? God, I've thought about this for a long time. I know exactly what you need to do. I just need you to put your power into my plan and ready, set, go. You ever prayed like this? Today? Yeah, we pray like this a lot. Um, Osborne says, God doesn't care if we've mastered the art of positive thinking. He's not impressed by the mental gymnastics of visualization. Shaquille O'Neal, how many of you ever heard of this person? He's a big fella, right? He's so big, in fact, that... Um, when he tries to shoot or tried to shoot a free throw, you familiar with what a free throw is in basketball? It's where someone does something to you, they've run into you, they've fouled you, and you get to stand in one spot with the clock stopped and everybody in the building looking at you and attempt to make a shot all by yourself. He's such a big man that his hands don't properly fit around a basketball. A normal person like me, six foot two, that's my size of my hand. I can palm a basketball with either hand. Shaq's hands are so big that they actually go farther around, and he has to hold the basketball on his fingertips. It doesn't work very well that way. He misses. He missed a lot of free throws. He missed so many that they hired someone full-time to help him shoot free throws. And I saw an interview with Shaq after they hired this person, Guess what they had this person teach Shaq how to do? Visualize. Visualize the ball going in the hole, and it will. Really? Because I'm pretty sure physics determine whether or not the ball is going to go in the hole. Unless God steps in and like drops it in, but I'm pretty sure he didn't care about the Lakers score. Visualize? It sounds happy. It sounds positive. And our culture right now is consumed with putting a smiley face on everything. 
right? The reality, is Heath in the building? I didn't see him come in. Heath, are you here? I have not seen you, buddy. The reality is when Heath walked in the building this morning and we prayed that he had some problems, some real problems. Some of you had a week last week that was horrendous. You got news about health issues. You got news about a loved one hurting. You got news about relatives going through some traumatic event. My grandmother is flirting with dementia right now. And her husband is dying of cancer. And my parents are in Orlando, Florida today trying to help as much as they can. My sister just had to move out of her house with her kids because her marriage is falling apart. That was this past week for me. Life's hard, guys. And visualizing doesn't make it better. Faith doesn't fix everything. Because the biggest problem with faith in faith is that faith must have an object. Right? You've heard our pastors say this before. Faith has to have an object. There has to be something that I'm directing it at. So I've got a stool up here tonight. I'd like a volunteer. Anybody that can come up on stage and help me out for just a second? We're going to use this for right now, and then I'm going to reference it later on. David, you coming? Thank you, sir. Come on. He shoved you out. So it's, it's a good friend. All right. Now, what, what would that, wait, 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 wait. You don't know that'll hold you up. You're 120 pounds. <laughs> He's like, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's got me, Jim, right? Okay, so... So let's think for a second. Let's stand over here. Okay. Um, do you have faith that'll hold you up? Yes. Yes. What's he putting his faith in? The stool. It's an object. It's real. Go ahead, see. He's kind of worried because the only thing I put on is like two pounds. <laughs> hey, it worked. Why did it work? That's, that's how it's designed, right? It's made to design, it was designed to hold your weight. Um, when we have faith in faith, there's no object there, right? So let's try this again. Have a seat on the imaginary stool. This has got to be God's perspective when he sees us do this. Right? Really? You're going to sit there and count on nothing. That was excellent, by the way. I didn't tell him to do that. It was fantastic. (laughs) Thank you very much. Appreciate your help there. Um, Faith in faith is sitting on an imaginary stool, guys. Here's the reality. The reality is that God is real. He was around way before the stool, right? He was around before the guy who designed the stool, he designed the guy that designed the, school, the stool, right? How cool is that? My God didn't just start things. He invented everything. It's an amazing concept, and he is real. And that's why faith in the object of God is something of substance. 
because there's an object there. So Hebrews 11, thank you for turning there. If you're not there by now, you may want to use the index in your Bible to find Hebrews. Okay. Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now faith is the substance or the foundation or the substructure of things hoped for, the evidence, the proof or the conviction of things not seen. Faith's not a feeling. Sometimes we think faith is a feeling. Faith's not a feeling. Faith is the firm ground we stand on because it's based on what God has promised us. Faith is not whatever you want it to be. Here's your blank. Faith is the present essence of a future reality. Hebrews 11.6. Skip down a few verses. But without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, that He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Now, Osborne talks for a few pages about how the English language messes everything up here. Because in English, our English Bibles translate Greek words differently throughout the New Testament. Okay? You're aware that words can have more than one meaning. Right? You go to the dictionary, there's a little number one, most obvious. Number two, second most obvious. Number three, I didn't know that. Number four, really? Number five, they're lying. There's no way that means that, right? So multiple meanings for single words. So as to keep parts of the Bible not sounding extremely overly repetitive, translators many times will use different English words for the same original language word. In the New Testament, the word for faith, the word for belief, and the word for trust, the vast majority of the time, is the Greek word pistis. When we think about each of those three, belief and faith and trust, we sometimes think that they're slightly different. There's a little bit different here, right? One is, well, faith, well, faith is when I sat down, right? Belief is me standing over here thinking that it'll hold me. And trust, maybe, I don't know, maybe that's the walking to the chair, right? Some type of difference between the three. The reality is they're all based in our action. They're all based in what we do with what we know. Now, I want to be very crystal clear here. I am not talking about a works salvation. A works salvation says I do something and I get saved. I believe in a works salvation. I believe Jesus did all the work and I get the salvation part. If you want to believe in a works salvation, that one will work. All the others will not. Now, what does this mean for me? Well... Each of these words carries a different meaning in the English language, but biblically they not overlap, but they're practically synonymous. Here's your blank. The kinds of faith the Bible advocates and God wants from us has far more to do with our actions than our feelings. When did David put his faith in the stool? When he sat down on it. That's the substance that's the evidence. Over here, thinking about it, hoping in it. He knows me, and he knows I'm a bit of a cut-up. And he knows that maybe I saw one of those legs. There was a moment there, just for a second, wasn't there? Where you're like, he's, he's got me here, doesn't he? He's going to make me laugh. Yeah. And when he sat down, that's when his faith became real. Now, 
What does Hebrews 11 say? Let's skip down a few verses because I don't readily identify with most of the folks in the first 30 some odd verses. I don't think of myself as an Abraham. Who else is listed in the first 30 some odd verses? Moses. No, no Moses there. Isaac. Not really, no. Who else? Jacob. Uh, I probably identify more with Jacob. He was a conniver. Yeah. Noah? Yeah, not Noah. Abel? Who else? Rahab? Yeah, probably closer there. But there's a lot of faith there. Look at verse 35, second half of verse 35. Many times in your English translations, it'll start a new paragraph here. This is the part we don't teach in Sunday school because it's not fun. It doesn't make you smile. It's hard to put a smiley face after these verses. Others were tortured. This is the faith chapter, right? But why did something bad happen to them? Didn't they have faith? Yeah, they had faith. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trials of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were, they were what? Stoned. They were sawn in two. Never underestimate how much the world hates Jesus. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins. For those of you who don't know what that means, um, the Romans had this wickedly insensitive way of getting sheepskins and goatskins wet. They would wrap them tightly around a Christian and they'd set them loose on a hot day. And as the sheepskin dried out, it would tighten and it would suffocate the believer. And the Romans got a kick out of this. Imagine, moms, seeing one of your children that had faith go through that. This is the hall of faith, guys. And we equate faith with there's some miraculous wonderful thing, then God steps in and saves the day. And that's not what he promised. He promised he'd walk with us through that. And that on the other side, he would make it right. But he doesn't say he's going to deliver us from all of these things. What else happens? Being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. Amen to that. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. Doesn't sound like a southern living home, does it? And all these, having obtained a good testimony through what? Through faith, did not receive the promise. God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. I have a question in my notes and the question is to me. Are you okay with God if he chooses to end your life like those in Hebrews 11:35 through 40? I ask myself this question periodically. And many times it reveals an idol in my heart that I'm the idol that my comfort is important. 
that it's about me, and it's not. I'm supposed to obey. That's our role. What God does with my obedience is his business. I'm going to say that again. What God does with my obedience is his business. He is sovereign. It is my job to obey. And that is hard. So you say, Jim, so what do we need faith for then? It doesn't sound like it turns out so well. Well, it does. Look at John 1, verses 12 and 13. Faith may cause more earthly problems, but faith in God, here's your blank, will always connect us to God. And that's one of the beautiful things. Because God wants to develop a life of faith in me. So when he puts an opportunity for me to trust him in a very real way, and I do, I just practiced faith. And then I go about my day and I see another opportunity to practice faith. And I practice faith. And pretty soon, this becomes a habit. And pretty soon, it becomes a lifestyle. And I think God smiles when we are obedient. And sometimes... He will tell us to do things that make very little logical sense. I've been rolling around this concept in my head the last few months. It'll probably turn into a Sunday school series in a few years. um, That we think that logic is greater than theology. I think in America today, we hold logic above all else. Because whoever's smarter, whoever can make the best argument, wins. They're obviously right. That's the one we should vote for. That's the one we should follow. That's the one we should whatever. And that's not the case. Whichever one adheres to the teaching of Scripture is the one that's right. And it may not be popular. And it may not be popular very soon. And you know what? We're going to obey. And if it's unpopular, or if it's illegal, or if it's whatever, we're going to obey. And if they storm these doors one day and lock us all up, we're going to obey. My 12-year-old daughter is in the room. And if they take her away from me one day because I teach the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, We're going to obey. And I will shed tears. And I will ask God for strength. But we are going to obey. So what does faith do? Faith connects us with God. Osborne has a uh, love-hate relationship with his GPS. How many of you use some type of a GPS device to get around? Have you ever obeyed your GPS when you did not think it was right? How did you feel at that moment? 
You felt lost, didn't you? Yeah. You felt like, I, I'm pretty sure I know that it's wrong. How many of you are the obey type? I will do whatever it says. Yes, I've got my hand up. You know why? I have no sense of direction. <laughs> if my wife was here right now, she'd be shouting amen and jumping up and down with thumbs up. I don't. I have no sense of direction whatsoever. I, honestly, I'm... Let me think. <laughs> yes. Is it? I was going to say that way. <laughs> my house is that way. That's, it's a mile from here, guys. Siri tells me how to get there. It's ridiculous. It really is. Osborne talks about this conundrum that you go through, this mental anguish, when you're going somewhere that you haven't been before. And it tells you to turn down a street that doesn't look very safe. You ever had that happen? My wife and I were going to eat for our anniversary one time in Knoxville. And I was going to take her out. We are going to eat at Ruth's Chris. It's one of my favorite places to eat in the whole world. It's ridiculously, exceedingly expensive. But they make a good steak. It is really good. And we finally got one here in Chattanooga. Score Business Bureau of Chattanooga. That's awesome. Um, and we got off the interstate. And it told us to turn a certain direction. And the road was closed. And the GPS did not know this. So I went the other way. And pretty soon, we ended up in an area of town that made me lock our doors and start to pray out loud. <laughs> There's a difference between the area of town that will make you pray and that will make you pray out loud in front of someone else. And I wasn't sure that I knew how to undo this little ball of twine because I have no sense of direction. But God, in his infinite wisdom, paired me up with someone who can find her way out of anything. It is unbelievable. She said, oh no, I've not been here before, but I think if we drive up here, turn left, go so far, there should be a road, I think I saw it from the interstate, that comes around and does this. She said, just do it. I said, okay, yes, yes, dear. Went on up, turned left, went so far, went another way. We're sitting in front of Ruth's Chris. And I thought for a minute about that. And I thought about how much faith I had in what she said. Because the faith was the doing of the thing, not just the knowing of the thing. Right? Because how would she have thought about me if I decided to do the opposite? Anyone? Not very well. It would have gone downhill quickly. When we obey and turn down the street that the Holy Spirit tells us to and exercise faith, in the object of God, we please Him. If the street looks scary or if the street looks safe, we please Him.
And that's a hard thing, right? It's hard because we don't like to go down scary streets. We put fences around our house. And we put fences around our neighborhoods. And we've created concepts like the police department to ensure law and order. We like safe and secure. Our cars are many tanks with all of the safety features. Some of these vehicles, there's no way you could injure anyone inside. It's unbelievable. Some of them are nothing more than aluminum cans. Um, I drive a 77 Ford F100. Please do not pull out in front of me. I will run over you and not even know I did it, okay? <laughs> it's not good. But faith is obedience. So you say, Jim, how do you know this? All right. When understood, this is Osborne's quote, when understood and applied, it doesn't matter how many doubts we have. It doesn't even matter if we're convinced that all is lost. Ultimately, all that matters is whether we have enough faith, maybe just a mustard seed's worth, to follow God's directions. Now, some of you will wrestle with this statement for a very long time. The concept that it doesn't matter if we really believe it or not. It matters if we do it. Because when did David prove his faith? When he sat in it. Did he have to believe it would work to sit, in the, sit on the stool? No, he didn't. He just had to sit on the stool. You say, Jim, how do you know this? All right. A couple examples. Who did Jesus commend for their faith in the New Testament? In Mark chapter 2, he was teaching, and dust started to fall from the ceiling. This was not normal. Pretty soon you could see daylight through the ceiling. And you could see arms reaching in and removing part of the ceiling structure. You hear the clanging of roof tiles. And the hole got bigger and bigger and bigger. And I can only imagine what the greatest teacher who ever walked the face of the earth did to keep his audience's attention while a hole appeared in the ceiling. I've said many times that um, for high school students, I can hold their attention. I can get it and keep it for a specific period of time. I found in February, I think it was February, it may have been April, my greatest opposition. I teach an ACT prep class in this building a few times a year, and there are windows in the room that I teach in. It began to snow outside. I don't care what you do in the room. You're not holding high school students' attention. If they can see it snowing, it's not happening. So here we have the greatest teacher in the history of the world, and dirt is falling from the ceiling while he is speaking. Didn't they know this was Jesus? They shouldn't interrupt a sermon like his. And what does the Bible say about their faith? It says Jesus saw their faith. He didn't hear it. He didn't read their minds and know what they were thinking. He saw their faith. And they lowered down their friend who was a paralyzed man. And what did Jesus do? You know the story? You've read the Bible? Yes? Some of you? Okay. What did Jesus do? He healed him. Whose faith? The friend's faith. 
That'll mess with your theology. <laughs> Jesus had a weird way of doing that, messing with people's theology when he would do things. It was wonderful. It's one of the reasons they hated him so much, because he didn't fit in their little box. We talked about that uh, last week in last week's Sunday School lesson on the Uzzah, the guy that touched the Ark of the Covenant and died. Um, a lot of people think God lived in the box. God didn't live in the box of the Ark of the Covenant. You don't put God in the box. He made the box. He lived above the box. He lived outside the box. He's not in the box. So Matthew chapter 8, a centurion runs up to Jesus and he says, I have a servant that's sick. Will you heal him? And Jesus says, absolutely, let's go. And the centurion says, no, 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 no. You don't need to go. You just need to heal him from here. And Jesus says something that's pretty amazing. What does he say? Anybody know? I haven't seen this kind of faith in Israel. It's beautiful. Seen it. He saw the man's faith. Faith is action. A lot of people think that uh, Paul and James did not agree theologically. You ever heard this argument before? That the Bible contradicts itself because James is focused on which side of the works or the faith. James is focused on the works. Paul is focused on the, on the faith side. The reality is it's a matter of perspective. Paul is looking at David standing up over here saying, I'm going to go sit in the stool. James is looking at David sitting on the stool. Same story. It's a matter of perspective, where it is in the story. The Bible didn't have contradictions in it. It really doesn't. I'm sorry. The Bible doesn't have contradictions in it. There we go. This is the responsive time of tonight's teaching. Yes. So you've got some homework. I assign homework in my classes. You didn't know you signed up for that, did you? At the bottom of the page, you've got homework for tonight. Read the story of Peter's release from prison in Acts 12, verses 1 through 19. Write down every element of surprise or doubt you can find in the story, and then write down everything that shows faithful obedience despite any doubt. And my question is, which list is longer? It will surprise you. So, this is the first of ten dumb things that smart Christians believe. There are nine more. This one is not in my top five favorite. Some of these are really, really good. They will make us confront very bluntly what we believe and how we talk about what we believe and how we interact with those that say they believe in these dumb things and how we do it in a loving way. So, that's week one. Next Sunday night at 5 o'clock, Lord willing, unless Jesus has brought us all home, and I am cool with that. Well, that was awesome. There we go. Um, we'll look at forgiving means forgetting, and a godly home guarantees godly kids. <laughs>